So welcome everybody to the fourth panel, uh, the Capital Freedom for China. And my name is Tao Zhang. I'm the US Bureau Chief of China's Taishi Media. I mean, Chinese government has been criticized for a long time for its strict control over the capital system, including the exchange rate, interest rate, financial monopoly, and also its capital account. But on the other hand, in recent years, especially this year, the People's Bank of China is pushing its reform gradually and slowly, but it is pushing it. I mean, it has expanded the trading range of RMB, and it's also widened the floating range uh, of the deposit rate. And it's also talking about open its capital account. So the Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, used to have a saying that, if you want to cross the river, you need to touch stones. And now the Chinese public is asking the government, while there is a bridge over the river, why don't you just cross the river on that bridge? And the government, I think, is answering that. Well, yes, we know, but wait a minute, we're still looking for stones. I think that's kind of a description about how China's reform on these issues. And what's the risk within the process? Where should the reform move ahead? How Chinese government should reform? And we've got three distinguished panelists here today for this topic. Um, our first, our first uh, panelist will be Professor Eswar Prasad. And he's a Tonani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University and also a Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the New Century Chair in International Economics and is also a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He was previously Chief of the Financial Studies Division in the IMF and uh, the Research Department. Before that, it's the head of its China division. And our second speaker will be uh, Mr. Yu Kong-Huang, who is a senior associate in the Carnegie Asia program, where his research focuses on China economic development and its impact on Asia and the global economy. Previously, he was the World Bank's country director for China and uh, Russia. And our third speaker will be Professor Chen Zhiwu, uh, who is a professor of finance at Yale School of Management. He is an expert on finance theory, security valuation, emerging markets, and China's economy and capital markets. So let's welcome our first speaker, Professor. Good afternoon. This is a very interesting time, as you know, to be talking about policy reforms in China. Like in the US, China has just finished the first stage of its leadership transition, in many ways very similar to what has happened in the US till the results were actually announced. We didn't know who was the winner. I understand the new leaders swept all of the swing provinces and actually did very well in virtually every demographic group. <laughs> so even Paul Ryan would find it very difficult to say they don't have a mandate. So with the mandate, what are they going to do? Now, the big question when one thinks about it from the rest of the world is how one thinks about China's engagement with the rest of the world. And of course, China has expanded its trade links very substantially with significant effects on the world trading system and on its trading partners. And the big question now is what happens when China considers similar engagement in the financial arena? And here, of course, there's been a great deal of hyperbole around the issue. 
the very fact that much about China is clouded in intrigue and the fact that China is such a large and dynamic economy obviously makes this a very interesting issue. But there is, I think, some degree of analytical circumspection that we need to have in terms of thinking about where China is going to go with its capital account opening process. And it's useful right up front to start with three categories that are useful as a typology. First, the concept of internationalization, which is the increasing international use of the currency, which is where a lot of the action has been so far. The second is capital account convertibility, that is free flow of capital um, into and out of the country. And there, there's been a lot less progress. Now, it turns out that neither of these is actually necessary or sufficient for the other. China has, in fact, managed to make progress on getting its currency used internationally without having an open capital account. And of course, there are many countries that do have very open capital accounts that don't have their currencies very widely used internationally. But both of these, capital account convertibility and international acceptance, internationalization, are necessary conditions for a country to attain reserve currency status. And that, I'm going to argue, is something that is quite a long way away for China. But these three tend to get very muddied in the fact that China has proceeded quite far on the internationalization track is often seen as evidence that China's currency is about to become a reserve currency. So let's start with the internationalization. This is where China has actually made tremendous strides. Now, these strides must be seen in proper proportion because a lot has been done. For instance, um, allowing trade settlement in yuan offshore, um, allowing renminbi bonds to be uh, issued offshore, allowing renminbi deposits to be accepted by Chinese and other banks, um, not just in uh, centers like Hong Kong, but even in the US. But if one takes all these measures together in terms of the quantitative impact, it's still pretty small right now. Now, one area in which there has been significant progress is the trade settlement. Through Hong Kong, there is an increasing amount of trade settlement that is taking place in Yuan. Um, but if you look at the amount of trade and the amount that is actually settled in Yuan, it's still a fairly modest number, around 10% or so. But the important thing, of course, is that a lot of this progress has taken place in just the last two years. So if you look at any of these dimensions, look at the trajectory in terms of quantities, they all look like this, because you're starting from basically zero. So the numbers are beginning to add up and look impressive, but once you start digging more closely into the numbers, things start becoming a little more interesting and a little fuzzier. Take, for instance, trade settlement. It turns out that if you look carefully at which side the trade settlement takes place, much of the trade settlement that was taking place early on was on one side of the trade uh, picture. That is, essentially, those from the rest of the world who were exporting to China were very happy to uh, get their um, payments in renminbi. On the other hand, importers who were importing goods from China either did not have the renminbi to settle those transactions in renminbi or were not particularly interested in doing so. So as you start looking at some of these issues and also the fact, for instance, that much of the renminbi bond issuance in Hong Kong was actually taking place by Chinese mainland companies issuing bonds there, you start getting a more textured and nuanced picture where one starts wondering if, in fact, much of the action we've seen is really 
a way of getting a, an opportunity to make a play on the China growth story or in the renminbi appreciating rather than something fundamental happening. Nevertheless, there has been significant progress. It's on the capital account convertibility that progress has been somewhat more limited. Now, of course, China has been reasonably welcoming to certain types of capital inflows, but what is interesting is how they've encouraged capital to go out of the country. Now, of course, until the financial crisis hit, and in fact, even after the crisis, a lot of this capital account opening on the outflow side was really to offset the pressure on the renminbi coming from the capital inflows. Um, so what China has been doing is encouraging corporates, institutional investors, financial institutions, and also households to take money out. In fact, if you look at the picture of capital account openness on the outflows, it does look like a fairly open economy because each household can, in principle, take $50,000 out a year. For an economy where the per capita income is about $7,000 uh, in nominal exchange rates, it seems like this is a very wide open capital account. But the one thing that keeps capital from flowing out that easily is the fact that you don't have financial market development. If in the US you want to go out and invest in a foreign country, you walk to the nearest branch of your T. Rowe Price, you can open a mutual fund account that gives you exposure abroad. In China, you don't have the financial market development that allows you to do this. So even though the capital account is in fact quite open in principle, in practice it turns out not to be that open. So this is where the Chinese government has been trying to manage this flow. Now, of course, capital account opening um, is inherently very risky, and there is a very large literature, um, uh, some of which I have contributed to myself, making the point that capital account opening should not really be seen as having direct benefits through capital inflows, because after all, many of the emerging markets that have done very well in terms of growth have not really been importing capital on net. Many of them, including China, have been exporting capital on net. But the key benefit, in my view, from financial opening for these economies is what uh, my colleagues and I have called the collateral benefits of opening. That is, you allow capital to come in so that you get benefits such as institutional development, you get better financial market development, more depth in financial markets. And in fact, China has been using its capital account opening process very effectively in this way. For instance, if you think about how they allowed foreign strategic investors to take um, uh, equity holdings in Chinese banks, the objective was not just to bring in foreign investors, but essentially to kickstart the process of improving corporate governance, which the domestic banks were simply not doing. So the idea was that foreign investors could get a stake of up to 10% and collectively a stake of up to 25% in um, major Chinese banks with the approval of the Chinese government. So this would give them some degree of control, but not that much control in terms of trying to manage the process. So the difficulty here again is how to get the sequence right, how to manage this difficult part of getting the capital account liberalization and the financial market opening managed carefully. And of course, if one thinks about the reform process, there are enormous constraints domestically and this is true not just of financial market reforms, but a variety of other reforms, because the system as it is now structured works wonderfully well for a lot of people, not just the large state enterprises, but also the large banks, a lot of provincial governments, so they don't want too much change and don't want it too fast. 
But from China's point of view, having Hong Kong as an experimental center actually works very well because although one might argue that one cannot do capital account liberalization in the way they've undertaken a lot of other reforms, testing it out in a province and then scaling it up national, nationwide, Hong Kong gives them an experimental center to do so. So I think the capital account opening process is moving along. But my view, in fact, is that the capital account opening process is really seen as driving domestic uh, reform agendas, including uh, moving towards more currency flexibility and moving towards more um, financial market development. So this brings up the question of where the currency is on the road to becoming a reserve currency. Now, if you think about what the criteria are for being a reserve currency, one is the size. And China looks pretty good in terms of size. It's now the second largest economy in the world. And depending on how you measure it, it accounts for about 10 to 12% of world GDP, nominal GDP, about 10 to 12% of world trade and growing fast by the day. Um, if you look at macroeconomic policies, who's to say that China has any worse macroeconomic policies than countries like the US? So on those fronts, they're making progress. In terms of capital account convertibility, clearly, Progress has been very limited, and it's hard to see a currency becoming a powerhouse reserve currency if the capital account is not open. Exchange rate flexibility is certainly helpful, and you don't often see countries that uh, don't have flexible exchange rates that are reserve currencies. But again, we are in a topsy-turvy world where um, reserve currency areas like Switzerland and Japan are, of course, intervening very heavily in FX markets. So the notion of a freely floating currency, again, doesn't seem to be absolutely critical. But in my view, the one critical dimension where China doesn't uh, match up yet is really financial development. Because if you want to be a reserve currency, you better have the financial markets to support it. And the amount of uh, public debt that is available in China, good for them, isn't very large. And in addition, you don't have other safe fixed uh, income assets like corporate bond markets and corporate paper available. So unless China can move forward in financial market development, it isn't going to make that much progress in terms of being a reserve currency. But my view, again, is that one should take a broader perspective on this. If you think about the notion of China becoming a China's currency, that Enminbi becoming a global powerhouse, the Chinese government itself seems to be very guarded about this prospect. I've been at meetings where Governor uh, Joe of the PBOC and uh, Yi Gang, the deputy governor, have often talked about the costs and benefits of the renminbi becoming uh, more accepted internationally. So they're much more balanced about this. But I think there is an important sense in which one can think about this really as a sort of Trojan horse strategy, that once everybody in China buys into this notion of the renminbi becoming a powerhouse currency, then it forces you to think about what is necessary for that to happen, and more important, what is necessary for that to happen safely. And that includes domestic reforms, which are necessary in and of themselves, including financial market development, uh, FX flexibility, and some of the things that were mentioned earlier in specific terms, like having uh, broader financial markets, that is a much broader range of instruments, deeper <clears throat> financial markets, and also more liquid financial markets. So in terms of breadth, depth, and liquidity, I don't think the Chinese financial system is quite ready yet. But nevertheless, and this is what is really intriguing, although it's not a convertible currency, although holdings of renminbi cannot be counted as reserves, there are a handful of economies that are already holding uh, renminbi, very small amounts as part of their reserve portfolio. Chile holds 
0.3% of its FX reserve portfolio in renminbi. Nigeria, Malaysia, even Japan have talked about holding renminbi in their reserve portfolios. There are about 14 central banks at last count that have set up currency swap lines with the People's Bank of China. And what is important is that these are local currency swap lines. Um, the PBOC used to have dollar swap lines, but now there are other central banks who seem to view um, local currency swap lines. That is an agreement where the PBOC will give these central banks um, renminbi if they should ever need it. These are beginning to pop up. My view, again, is that given that the amounts are small, these do not signal that the renminbi has become accepted as a global reserve currency. But China is a fast-growing country. People can see the writing on the wall that someday the renminbi is going to be an important player, and everybody wants to be friends with China. So I think what we will see, really, is a process by which China manages um, as it seems to have skillfully done in many other dimensions, this very difficult balance between financial market development and other domestic objectives in order to make the currency take an important role in the international stage. And again, it's not just individual countries, but institutions like the IMF that want to be friends with China. And they also feel that having China more involved in the international community is going to give them more leverage. So my sense is that even though the renminbi may not become convertible for the next decade or so um, in uh, full convertibility terms, I think the renminbi will become a part of the IMF's SDR basket within the next five years and become a functional reserve currency within the next 10 years. But is this going to displace the dollar? Highly unlikely. I think it's just going to erode rather than displace the dollar's dominance. Thanks. Thank you, Jim, uh, for inviting me to speak. The paper is available. Uh, it's a co-author with my colleague at the Carnegie, Clara Lynch. I want to start off by making this a question, because ever since the governor, Zhou Xiaotran, raised this question, he actually raised it in the context of the international monetary system, there's a whole slew of literature on the question of internationalizing the RMB uh, its pace, its requirements, and generally saying it's, it's quite good. And let me make first two comments. First, this topic is actually not new. If you think about it, China's currency was an international currency or last international currency 400 years ago. At that time, China accounted for 30% of global GDP. So Chinese copper coins were floated all throughout East Asia, South Asia. At that peak, where after that peak, China began a slow decline. And so now we're revisiting the question again. Now, from a Chinese perspective, you look back, you ask, what are the other countries where their currency have become international reserve currencies? The British pound, slow decline afterwards. Okay? The yen, problems afterwards. The euro, we just heard a lot about that. The dollar is taking a long time. But from a historical perspective, it's not entirely obvious that having your currency as an international currency is really something you want to achieve. So why does China want to internationalize the RMB? What happens here? Ah, this is the goes down. Okay. There we go. The motivations for international the RMB. Now, let's think about it from a Chinese perspective. What do we know about China's policy leaders? 
extraordinarily fixated on stability. They want to manage the, the economy. They don't like to see deviations. Does internationalizing the RMB facilitate or work against that objective? And clearly, it probably does work against it rather than facilitate it. You lose autonomy in terms of your exchange rate. Interest rates fluctuate. Capital moves more freely. You're subject to more volatility. So why in God would the Chinese leaders want to internationalize the RMB? Now, clearly, it's good for trade efficiency. This is a major trading country. It wants to eliminate or reduce the costs of moving goods back and forth, primarily because it's part of a production-sharing network where movements of components back and forth is extremely important. So trade efficiency is a major issue. Prestige. Does China want to enhance its prestige because of internationalizing the RMB? Possibly. But how do you put a weight on that? Unclear. And my friend Eswar Altschul mentioned, however, what I would say is actually the most important issue, the Trojan horse for reform. It really has nothing to do with internationalizing the RMB. It has a lot to do with the kinds of reforms that are associated with internationalizing the RMB. I still have a problem here. Let me see. You go to the next slide, I'll do it. Oh, all right, I'm sorry here. So let's take a look at the costs and benefits. And I can go fairly quickly because some of these overlap with what Ezwar was saying. Trade efficiencies, very important. Potentially reduced exchange risk, not clear. The RMB will go back and forth more than it used to in the past. What about CNARG? CNARG is seen as being the major advantage that America has had by having the dollar as the international reserve currency. But think about what's related with that CNARG. Flexibility in generating fiscal deficits and trade deficits of enormous magnitude. How does that look against what I would call Chinese policymakers' views, which they generate major trade surpluses and they don't believe in fiscal deficits? Seniorage cannot possibly be a particular benefit that they see. What are the costs? The Triffin dilemma. You lose monetary control. You have to run trade deficits rather than surpluses. You can't coordinate domestic policy with foreign. So why would you want to do this? Not clear to me at all. You subject yourself to exchange rate volatility for a country which really wants exchange rate to move very, very slowly and gradually over time. And you're potentially more exposed to external shocks. That's not particularly appealing. It is not entirely obvious from this checklist why, if I were a Chinese senior policy leader, that I would actually want to internationalize the RMB. And what we have now, and I can more or less skip this very quickly because Eswar mentioned it, they essentially have gone through a process of partial internationalization with capital controls. China's fully integrated the global trade markets. Some amount of this trade is settled in RMB, but really quite small. They've developed lots of uh, vehicles for internationalizing the RMB in Hong Kong and Sunzun, extending into other countries in <coughs> Southeast Asia. But the domestic financial markets are rudimentary. Cross-border capital controls are restricted. And the potential for actually strengthening these financial institutions in the near term or next decade are really quite limited for reasons which are not entirely obvious to everybody in the West. China is, however, interested in pushing out money, overseas direct investment. And there are estimates that this could be as much as $100 billion annually over the next couple of years. And that serves a useful purpose, of course. It's one way to get RMB out there if you don't generate trade deficits. And that's a big issue. 
How do you get an international reserve currency if there's no RMB out there? Now, foreign political sensitivities is also what I would call in the back of everyone's mind. We've never had a situation where international reserve currency was not a currency of a democracy. And lurking in the background is, can the RMB really be an international reserve currency given the global political environment? What I'd like to now focus on is, what are the Trojan horse reforms that could actually be motivating the Chinese leadership if international RMB actually is not the objective? And I think it is very clear they want to make the exchange rate more flexible. And I emphasize the word flexible because they really don't want to say that the RMB should be appreciating, and they certainly don't want to say it should be depreciating, but they want to be able to say, we got, we've got to be able to let it move both ways. And this is a very good time. Now, why is it a very good time? It's very good time to introduce flexibility if the other major currencies are basically becoming highly volatile because it gives you the opportunity of going up or down and not be tied to a one-way movement. So that's one particular objective. They do want to make the exchange rate more flexible, but not one-way movement. And this is a good time for that purpose. And you see that in terms of things like the euro and the yen. When you go through internationalizing those currencies, you go through a period of volatility. And this is potentially what's going to happen with the RMB. Now, interest rates, financial reforms. There's a lot of focus on China. And generally, what you hear is China needs to uh, uh, get away from financial repression. And the major focus is negative real interest rates. But this, in my view, is actually a false proposition. China's interest rates are not any more negative than anybody else. In actual fact, they're probably more positive than most countries. So the, the, the cry that the interest rate should be increased doesn't actually make much sense. But what does make sense is interest rates got to be more flexible, and they have to be market-determined. But how do you make it market-determined if you don't have domestic capital markets? And you're not likely to have domestic capital markets for a long time. And the reason you don't have domestic capital markets is primarily because the Chinese authorities rely upon banks, loans, money supply to motivate activity and allocate resources rather than other kinds of capital markets. And they do this also primarily because their fiscal system is underdeveloped. Now, if you think about it, the focus is on the financial system, reforming the financial system, which is actually too large because the banks, the money supply are much too large. But the real problem in China is that its budget is too small. Its budget is a share of GDP, government expenditures, revenues as a share of GDP is only 26%. Now think about this, this is a socialist country, controls all the resources, and its budget is about 50% less than other middle income countries. And unless they get that right, financial reforms really are going to be very difficult to act upon. Capital controls, as Eswar has pointed out, there has to be more flexibility in the movement of capital. But we as bankers or as economists are always taught, you liberalize outflows last, you liberalize inflows first. But China, of course, is always very different because the real issue actually is you have to reverse this for China. China should actually be trying to push more money out and less worried about money coming in. And why should they be worried about, less worried about money coming in? You're going to be growing at 7 8% a year for another 10 years, twice as fast as the rest of the world. You have a locked tons of money in the country. You have $3 trillion of reserves. Capital moving out 
is probably fine, and you should promote it. But yet, most of the commentary out there is capital flight, worry about it. It showed up last quarter, people became petrified. Actually, they should try to encourage this rather than discourage this. Now, if capital could actually move out more easily, this would be great for China. Firms and households in China could diversify their investment choices, and they would move away from buying just another apartment, leaving it vacant in Beijing. It would actually spur more domestic competition among the banks for savings and actually start changing or motivating interest rates becoming more flexible. It reduced the pressure for RMB to appreciate. So if I were the Chinese leaders, I would want to actually move the money out. Now, where should you actually focus on if you're really concerned about internationalizing the RMB is the regional production trade sharing network. The trade among the various countries in East Asia, they're shipping parts and components to each other. This is enormous, growing incredibly rapidly. And the major consequence of this regional production sharing network is that the RMB and other exchange rates in Asia are essentially now moving in tandem, and the RMB is becoming the reference point for other currencies. And I think much more work needs to be focused on what does this mean for internationalizing the RMB in a regional context. So the conclusion I have is don't focus so much upon internationalizing the RMB. Focus on the reforms that are part of the basket, but which are really sensible for China at this stage. And then focus a lot more upon what's going on in the region in terms of this trade regime and its implications for the exchange rate and the potential for the RMB for the being the trade settlement currency in the region, which it is currently not. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Um, first, I want to thank uh, Jim again, just uh, like the previous speakers. Uh, this is actually uh, the first time that uh, I've been to the uh, Cato, uh, Cato Institute, uh, also the first time uh, for this conference. Uh, initially, I planned many slides, uh, thinking that I might have 30 minutes. But now, I'm going to just use a few of my uh, prepared slides and talk about uh, uh, capital freedom, uh, especially, you know, the, the going trend uh, uh, in uh, capital freedom uh, in China, uh, but mostly using uh, the stock market as uh, kind of uh, as a case study, just to highlight uh, where difficulties may lie uh, going forward uh, in order to make capital more free in China. Uh, so first, uh, this chart uh, is something that some of you may have seen. I personally, I found this chart to be really uh, a very good uh, summary uh, chart of uh, all the changes in terms of uh, monetarization and capital freedom uh, in China since uh, 1978, 1980. Uh, so uh, the main uh, quantity for this uh, chart is uh, really the M2 uh, divided by GDP. Uh, so this ratio uh, can be viewed as uh, the degree of uh, monetarization uh, in the Chinese society. So going back to the 1980s, uh, you know, the beginning level was pretty low, about 35% uh, for each dollar of GDP. Uh, but now, recently, it's almost 200%. Uh, so the M2 is almost two times uh, the total GDP. But for the US, it's about 60%. Uh, so you wonder what has happened. Uh, uh, maybe, uh, of course, uh, you know, the high inflation uh, that has been experienced in China is partly due to the uh, overexpansion, high growth uh, in money supply. But actually, that's only part of the story. Uh, a major, major contributor to this uh, rising trend 
uh, in this uh, relative uh, monetization metric uh, is uh, the increase in uh, use of money uh, to settle economic exchanges and also in resource allocation. Uh, so as the level of monetization has been increasing in China, uh, individual liberty and freedom have really uh, uh, increased tremendously. Uh, maybe uh, just to give you an example of what I'm uh, trying to say, uh, a few years ago when I read the story about the, um, uh, the former dean of the uh, School of Economics at uh, Fudan University in Shanghai, you know, that's the, the best university uh, in the South, uh, not only in Shanghai. Uh, so he was uh, reported to uh, have uh, uh, had a relationship with a prostitute, and then he had to be fired uh, from the university. Uh, of course, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, that would have been uh, the end to his whole life, uh, not just to his personal freedom, because in old days, housing was totally tied to employment, and the government was the only employer for practical purposes, right? So losing employment uh, from a government agency would mean a loss of housing, uh, a loss of health care, a loss of uh, schooling opportunities for his children. You pretty much lose your, uh, the, the, your right to actually live in China in those days. Uh, but now, you know, they didn't, did not have to worry too much because First of all, you know, after 1998, the housing market was pretty much all privatized. So he would have uh, his title to his uh, housing uh, independent of his employment because the housing purchases would totally be done using anonymous money, uh, whereas before, housing allocation would be totally based on where you, where you were working and what your administrative uh, rank would be. You know, if you're ranked very high, then you get a bigger home, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, a very small one. And then uh, uh, healthcare and uh, private hospitals uh, all have been developing in China. So for this dean, then again, uh, losing, uh, losing his job uh, at the university would not mean necessarily losing uh, healthcare uh, uh, or retirement benefits, right? And then even more importantly, uh, now there are so many private enterprises uh, offering job opportunities, uh, let alone those uh, foreign multinationals who would all be very happy to hire this uh, former dean. So, so when you think about you know, what really uh, capital development, capitalization and uh, monetization have really meant uh, for an average Chinese uh, or even for the relatively successful uh, elite Chinese people. A, a lot of uh, personal freedom have come uh, as a result. This is why uh, some of my anthropology colleagues at Yale and other uh, places have been writing on the rise of the individual uh, in China. Uh, if I just, again, use one minute to give you another a quick uh, story. Uh, several years ago, McDonald's, uh, uh, the headquarters office, uh, told all the marketing offices all around the world to come up with uh, the next marketing theme for McDonald's globally. To their surprise, uh, actually the China team actually won uh, with this slogan, you know, uh, uh, I'm loving it. You know, some of you may have seen the commercials. But it's very hard to imagine, you know, the, chi the, the China team for McDonald's would, come, would be able to come up with uh, this so individualistic message. 
especially actually in China on TV, the, ad, the commercial was uh, uh, based on this, uh, uh, this uh, fast-going Jeep in the middle of a desert. And then, you know, the Jeep was totally open, it's convertible. Huh? Uh, the most popular Chinese singer was standing uh, on the fast-moving Jeep saying, I'm loving it. So it's like, okay, yeah, you may say McDonald's foods are not healthy and so on. I don't care. I'm me. I'm, I love it, right? So I'm me. I don't have to care about that. I can give you many such stories. So to me, I just find it to, I found it to be so fascinating. You know, on the one hand, this traditionally collectivist society is so much against uh, in, the, the rights of the individual. On the other hand, uh, today, you know, with marketization and monetization and the increased capital freedom, uh, have really made one to arrange his or her life as he wishes. Uh, so anyway, uh, but there are many challenges, uh, you know, to say the least. Uh, so one thing I want to focus on is uh, the still dominating uh, state ownership of business and land and other assets. Uh, it's still at the core of the barrier or resistance uh, to further increases uh, in uh, uh, capital freedom and uh, to further increases uh, uh, for, the in, uh, the, for, for the rights of the individual. Uh, so here, just to give you a basic uh, sort of cross-country uh, data uh, 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 finding as uh, the background, uh, what I've done is to uh, use the uh, average SOE share in total investment in the country between 1978 and 1991 as the uh, differentiating uh, instrument to divide about 60 countries into three groups. And then I look at the average rule of law uh, ratings uh, for each of the three groups. So not too surprisingly, what you see is this negative uh, correlation. The higher the, uh, the SOE share in total investment, uh, the lower the rule of law ratings. Uh, so basically, you get first is get this uh, negative correlation. So somehow, uh, the more dominant uh, the state uh, sector is in a given economy, uh, the more detrimental it is uh, to the functioning of legal institutions and to the fu independent functioning of the judiciary. What about capital freedom? So I use this uh, instrument provided by uh, Andre Schleifer and his colleagues uh, the latitude of capital in each country. We can roughly uh, think of it as uh, uh, the degree of capital freedom in, in each country. So again, when I relate this to uh, the uh, SOE share in investment across the 60 countries, uh, the, uh, the correlation is again very negative. Uh, so the, uh, the, uh, the lower uh, the SOE share uh, in a country's uh, uh, economy, uh, the higher uh, the latitude of capital or the higher the degree of, uh, of freedom. Uh, so just quickly, um, so w one thing we can see, say, is uh, SOE dominance in an economy uh, can be uh, detrimental or, or, or barriers uh, to capital freedom and legal development. So if this is the case, right, uh, why is it difficult uh, for me to say that uh, going forward in China, it's tougher to uh, have more uh, uh, further rise uh, in, uh, in uh, capital freedom uh, doesn't they, they, especially the new leadership, also see this, uh, where they uh, speed up the privatization of SOEs so that the judiciary and the regulators can be made much more independent, more impartial uh, to legal cases and also to uh, protect the different parties involved uh, in, the, in, in a capital transaction. Uh, so let me uh, uh, go back a little bit just to see, uh, to, to highlight 
the historical legacy uh, in which uh, the state, Chi the Chinese state or government has always played a very special role uh, in uh, 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 enterprise development. And uh, the big background is, uh, uh, if I go back to uh, uh, the late Qing, uh, the late 19th century, when uh, uh, you know, after China lost in both uh, opium wars, uh, first around uh, 1840 and then the 1860s, uh, the intellectuals in China and the more progressive uh, uh, government officials uh, were very determined uh, to try to uh, st uh, strengthen uh, the Chinese society, the Chinese economy, and so on by adopting uh, Western industrial technologies. Uh, but then one obvious uh, challenge at that time was, you know, yeah, okay, you can uh, adopt the, the most uh, uh, advanced uh, industrial technologies, uh, especially with the help of, of, the, of the first uh, Chinese student who, uh, who went to any American university, so he was a graduate of Yale, so he helped this, this whole movement, and including the design of a limited liability corporation for the Chinese government. So where is the, uh, the capital, uh, especially Large sum, where do you find large sums of, uh, of capital uh, in order to uh, uh, provide uh, the support for the self-strengthening movement? Uh, so that's how they, that's when they, uh, they realized that, well, you don't, uh, you don't just learn from the West modern technologies, but also you need to learn uh, the capitalization uh, uh, technologies, uh, so financial technologies, that's one of the things, uh, especially one uh, 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 scholar official, uh, uh, Xue Fuchen, uh, mentioned in the 1870s. He said, if China does not adopt the Western corporate form, uh, China will never be rich nor powerful. So that's like a very, very typical uh, sort of uh, understanding in the uh, late 19th century. And then, um, but of course, uh, uh, if that's the case, uh, 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 where are there institutions available uh, to really make uh, capital, uh, capitalization development uh, really possible? As we all know, uh, uh, you know one uh, version of what it means by capital is, is, the liqui is liquefied property rights, uh, liquefied uh, right ownership rights. Uh, so in order for ownership rights to be uh, mo mo uh, mobile, to move from one person to another, or one entity to another, you need uh, legal uh, institutions and regulatory institutions uh, that are, in, uh, that are uh, impartial. But that's exactly where China did not have uh, uh, in the late 19th century, uh, okay? Uh, and then, uh, anyway, uh, there are many different stories, but the one key solution uh, the uh, reformers in the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century in China came up with was to get the government to come in uh, to be either stake direct equity owners or major sponsors of all the new modern limited liability corporations uh, because otherwise uh, no, no uh, merchants or rich families or individuals would be willing to uh, trust uh, 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 the users of such capital would be or would be they, they would not be willing to uh, part uh, their hard-earned money uh, from themselves. So that's how the state uh, came in and then became bigger and bigger uh, in uh, you know sponsoring enterprises, owning enterprises, and so on. So that was the the experience, the reason behind uh, the state's involvement uh, in the. Uh, uh, 
uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, but of course, after the communist uh, uh, government came in uh, and formed uh, the People's Republic of China in 1949, so the stock market uh, was pretty much uh, shut down in the 1950s and all other uh, uh, hints or versions or, uh, or forms of the capitalist tale huh, were all cut. Uh, so so state-owned enterprises became really the only uh, legally allowable uh, form uh, in the 60s and, and 70s. Uh, but by, 19, uh, eight, by the uh, uh, 1980s, then uh, the SOEs were running into uh, major uh, financial losses. And then, um, and then uh, in, uh, in 1990, uh, stock market development and other capital market development re-emerged again. But at this time, uh, the main purpose was really to help the SOEs raise funds from uh, the general societies to solve their uh, financial uh, 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 challenges. Uh, so, so even today, uh, just to, uh, summar uh, just to uh, uh, summarize, uh, because the state ownership for most uh, large Chinese corporations uh, uh, still about two-thirds, uh, because I'm also on the border of, uh, you know, like PetroChina. So PetroChina's uh, uh, state ownership is about 84%. Uh, so when you have uh, the government being the equity uh, holder, uh, operator of such operations, uh, of such uh, corporations, then the judiciary and the regulators cannot really be uh, impartial. Uh, so, in fact, uh, there have been some cases in China where the judge would rule against an SOE, but then right afterwards, uh, the judge would be penalized because uh, his ruling led to the loss of uh, state-owned assets uh, because of uh, penalty payments and so on. So all those things have just really uh, stifled uh, the development of impartial legal institutions or uh, for the further rise uh, of uh, um, uh, capital freedom. Okay, I should stop here. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Chen. Uh, now let me open questions to the floor, and I just want to remind you that identify yourself and uh, please keep your question short. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Kent Jones. I'm from Babson College. I couldn't help thinking during the presentations today about the book Why Nations Fail by Asimoglu and Robinson which is, takes a very pessimistic view towards China's ability to sustain its economic growth in the absence of democratic institutions. However, what I hear in your reports today is a possible link between capital market deepening and development and possible, say, increased freedom of Chinese as individuals, which you mentioned in the slogan uh, a little bit earlier. I wanted to ask the panel what they thought, whether they thought we might be seeing democratic elections in China that could be linked with capital market development. Uh, no. <laughs> I think the reality is that um, the Chinese uh, Communist Party has relied to a significant extent on delivering the goods economically in order to maintain its legitimacy, and I don't see that changing very soon. There is a lot of pressure at the uh, provincial and local levels, which tends to bubble over quite often. And I think it's this very difficult um, combination of rising inequality and corruption, which is felt um, um, uh, very tangibly by the poor in particular. That is something that um, the Chinese government is very concerned about. 
The government is also very concerned in particular about um, social strife in urban areas because if it's in the rural uh, areas, that's sort of easier to manage. So for instance, when food prices were rising very fast, um, um, uh, and that's happened a couple of times uh, in recent years, um, the big concern was not so much about the rural areas because um, farmers do better with rising food prices, but the urban poor were getting hammered also because the social services were not very good. So it's, it's not easy to see how China has managed this difficult balancing act. Um, and as um, uh, Professor Chen pointed out, there are uh, difficult institutional um, uh, constraints that China has still not been able to come to terms or grapple effectively with. Um, and yet they've managed to deliver in terms of economic performance. And I think this is the way the Chinese Communist Party still sees it to some extent, that if they can deliver economically, that takes some of the pressure off politically. So one might argue that it should be working the other way, that with increasing economic liberalization, you should see more political liberalization, but it's not obvious to me. Um, can I, I, I would say yes, uh, just to... Uh, not just for the sake of disagreeing with uh, Professor Prasad. I, uh, the reasons are, are, are at least two. Um, first, um, you know, whatever has been successful uh, by the Chinese government to uh, basically uh, buy out um, uh, discontent by offering uh, economic benefits and other things, uh, that has been successful partly because, you know, as long as the GDP is growing fast at 9%, 10%, you have a lot of options to actually uh, use uh, to satisfy the discontent uh, general public. But once GDP growth is harder, uh, as we are seeing now, uh, you know, the export market uh, dependence is not easily, uh, uh, you know, uh, available anymore. And also the the early real estate market development, urbanization-related growth, and, and all those dividends uh, have been more or less used up. Uh, so as a result of all those used up div dividends, uh, the options available are not, uh, at least are declining uh, in number and uh, in quantity. Uh, so I think it's a matter of time when things have to change. Uh, the second reason uh, that, that, that for me to say yes is, um, uh, I have studied sort of how the stock market development has really forced uh, changes in both the official ideology and also in accommodating uh, individual rights and individual freedom. Uh, for example, uh, in the old days, uh, in the 90s, and all the way up until the, uh, the uh, 16th Party Congress 10 years ago, uh, the only justifiable, legally justifiable means to uh, earn money uh, was through labor. Okay, so buying a stock uh, without working at it, uh, if you lose money, then it's okay. Okay, it's no problem. But if you actually make money from a, a stock investment or financial investment, for Communist Party members, it used to be that uh, you should not take that money because that money should not be legal. Uh, so that forced uh, the party to actually change the charter uh, in, the, in the 16th Party Congress in uh, 2002 uh, to now allow uh, four different forms of uh, legally justified money making. Uh, you know, labor is still one, uh, but actually capital contribution is, 
is one is the other three uh, forms. So, uh, so that's what they, that's one. Uh, why you then you wonder why that's the case, right? Well, China needed to develop the stock market. Uh, so in order to really justify stock market development and uh, uh, an income uh, through investing in the stock market, the, the Communist Party had to change its charter. Uh, and then there are many other things uh, that that uh, would not have been possible. Uh, without uh, the stock market being the driving force uh, for such changes. Uh, I just want to add, if the question is whether rising social unrest could put pressure on the system that ultimately leads to more personal freedom, my, my view would be, yes, it will. And let me indicate it in two ways. The government now spends more in terms of dealing with domestic security issues than it does on the military. Very fixated here in Washington on the rise of China's military expenditures, but we don't actually realize that China spends more on domestic security than it does on the military. And that was not the case five, 10 years ago. Now, why is it spending so much on internal security? Because the incidence of mass social unrest increased from something like 90,000 seven or eight years ago to 160,000. Now, the interesting thing is, if you look at these incidents of mass social unrest, 160,000, two-thirds of these incidents are accounted for by just two factors, and they're economic factors, actually. One is labor issues, the right to work, to be paid, the contracts, the movement of labor. The other is land, property rights, the transfer, to sell, to own, to use. Now, two-thirds of 160,000 incidents of social unrest relate to a kind of an economic or property rights issue. It's something the government has to deal with, and it's going to happen. Now, where will it start to happen? Because this is all happening in the local provincial areas, and it's going to have to happen within the communist system, because that's the reality of the world. And it has to start off with what I would call greater freedom in terms of local elections, which are in principle determined or free, but they're not really. And if they can change that so that the elections are relatively free, and therefore the officials the people are protesting with or against are actually accountable to them, only then can you get to this question of accountability, political change, and dealing with what I call some of these economic factors which trigger some of the social unrest. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, due to the time limit, we have to end here. And please join me, thank our panelists.